0: I'm reasonably sure we have a sermon at this point.
1: (laughs) I've always had a lot of questions. Sometimes internalised. Forgotten. Sometimes very real and present. I moved to Brighton and got invited to a party. It was in a church. I imagined some crazy rave. But it was unlike anything I've ever been to. I met people from all walks of life. Some were Christians, some weren't. We all had questions. We all wanted to explore life. We're told to question and search, but how do we explore for ourselves? Society often tells us where to look. At Alpha, I discovered something authentic, real and full of life. And now? I still have questions. Maybe even more so.
0: Everyone. My name is Daryl. For those of you who can't remember who I was, it seems like ages since I've been to a night service. I don't know what it is two or three weeks, something like that. I can't remember. But it feels like ages even before that, certainly since I've spoken here. But it's lovely to be back here tonight, and I'm by myself. My lovely wife has gone to Sydney to look after our two granddaughters. She's down there for, I think, ten days. Frida, um, No, so pray for me while she's away. Um, she's helping out, obviously, our son and his wife, my, our daughter-in-law, Gretel. Uh, they both work full-time, and so it's difficult to find babysitters and all of that, and so of course Rhonda's on school holidays for the next two weeks, so she jumped at the chance, and so I put her on a plane this afternoon, and off she's gone. She's, the package has landed safely, is the text that I got. Um, if, you, if you're here tonight for the very first time, and we're delighted to have you here, it's all my, I'm welcoming myself, I think I'll get a welcome back on the way out end of the service we have uh, something to eat or drink and a time to relax. Tonight, because it's Easter Sunday, uh, normally on Easter Sunday nights it's a toned down service. But let me commend to you, the guys who have been letting the service up until night, you guys are outstanding. Can we acknowledge that together? I have some feedback on the musicians, just a few little tweaks here and there that will lift it just a little bit. No, not at all. I thought it was brilliant and great songs and beautiful voices and hard, well, for me personally, very easy to engage, to talk about the truth of what this day represents for us. And so tonight, all I wanted to do was not really preach or teach to officially, I guess it is teaching, but I wanted to work our way through the passage, verses 1 to 18, verse by verse, just read a verse, make a comment Tie it together in some way, make some sort of applications or observations about it. It's a very rich passage. Uh, if you've been following Jesus for many years, like I have, then every year, come Easter, you return to these passages and you reread them. And not every time, but often, you see something that you haven't seen before. You observe something that you haven't observed before. That's certainly the case for me this week. There were lots of little side alleys and tracks and things that I went down to enjoy and some of them I'll share with you tonight. Some of them um, I may make as a throwaway comment and I certainly would want to encourage you that if you've got questions that before you leave tonight, please feel free to come and ask somebody. You can talk to me, you can talk to just about nearly anybody who is here tonight and ask the questions. We want this to be a safe place. So we're going to look at uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10, and we're looking at primarily two parts. Verses 1 to 10 is talking about pretty much laying the foundation, the evidence for the empty tomb. And then John, in the way that he tells the story, he gives the beginning of the next significant evidence, which is an appearance, an appearance to a lady, significant lady. And the more you find out about her, the more impressed you become, a remarkable lady. Anyway, let's see what we can learn from that tonight. Can I pray and ask God's blessing upon me and upon you. Let's pray. Thank you Lord for the opportunity we have to gather together on this Easter Sunday night. We thank you for each other. We pray for many of our folk who are away camping, on holidays, Easter camps, whatever and we ask that you would bless them and with whatever they're involved in this night. Keep them safe and for them and for us Lord we pray that You might open the scriptures to us tonight, that you might speak to us, that you might impress upon us, make us aware of some aspect of truth that we haven't observed before, remind us of previous truths that we have grasped. But in all of this, we ask that you might be pleased to draw near to us and help us not just to confess with our mouth, but actually to experience in our hearts and in our spirit that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is Lord. May he be more real to us than breathing itself. We pray and ask this in his name. Amen. There are three significant... Is that echoey? There are, there are three, three... um, Significant bits of evidence when it comes to defending or explaining the resurrection of Jesus. Because we're only few in number tonight and we've got oodles of time, I'm not going to take... A long time, I don't think. I should... That's P.A. Payback. Um, though normally, when I say I'm not going to take a long time, I normally take a lot longer. So I'm determined not to do that tonight because I do understand you've had some long services, and we don't want to drag it on tonight. What are the three significant evidences to prove to establish that Jesus Christ did live? and is alive today, what happened in here at Easter? What are the three significant things to establish? And the answers are, one, he died. Number two, he died and he was buried. Secondly, today, he rose and he was seen, witnesses. They're the three significant things. He died, the tomb was empty, he rose, and he was seen. And not just then linked with each of those, as he died and he was buried, uh, he rose and the tomb was empty, and he was seen and lives were changed. Those three are the foundation things. You ever seen those movies where, not movies or documentaries or something, where they take explosions into old buildings and they put the explosions at certain key points, at you know structural foundation points of the building? and they're going to, just by pushing a button, all these things go off at the same time, and the building just collapses upon itself. <laughs> seen those? So let's these three power points, these three truths that we've just mentioned tonight. Jesus died, the tomb was empty, and he rose, and he was seen by others. Those three are the foundation building blocks, the strength of Christianity. Disprove any one of those, Christianity crumbles to the ground. That's how significant it is. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, who had lots of issues and lots of questions, he actually comes, this is one of them, they had a different perspective on what the resurrection meant. And he basically said to them, Jesus died, the tomb was empty, and Jesus arose and appeared to many. and gave the names of those to whom he appeared to, a list of the names. And he really said, if you don't understand that, then your faith is useless. You're still in your sins. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if God doesn't raise the dead, and so on. And he argues the point through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Pastor David spoke about that this morning. So those three foundational truths, Christ died, John chapter 19. We're not looking at that tonight. But the next two, the tomb was empty. And the appearances, John nails it. John is a senior um, apostle. He's now an elderly guy. He's over 60, 70, 80, maybe older. And he's looking back when he pens his gospel. He may have written it, you know, a couple of decades beforehand, before he wrote the book of Revelation, whatever. But he was certainly the longest living apostle and he may have written it right towards the end of the first century or getting up there, 80s, 90s, something like that. So what? Well, that means he had the perspective of looking back Mark had written his gospel, Matthew's written his gospel, Luke's written his gospel, they're all circulating, there are other documents and other evidences floating around and John can tell the story from his perspective because he was there and he gets, well the way I read it, he gets a little bit excited in telling it and he tells us things the other ones don't just like they say things that he doesn't of course. So what are the things, well here we go, verse 1, John chapter 20, let's just work our way through it carefully. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, according to John, by herself, went to the tomb. What does she see? That the stone had been removed from the entrance. It's the first day of the week. That's significant. Because now Christians don't no longer worship on a Saturday. We now worship on a Sunday. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because this is when the disciples discovered the empty tomb and discovered and, and saw the risen Lord Jesus Sunday, the day after the Sabbath establishment of Christian worship it was dark, John says something like between 3am and 6am early, early, Sunday morning before sunup you read the other gospel writers and there are other women who went as well John doesn't tell us about that um, when they got there the sun was coming up it was nearly dawn so it's in this wee small hours of the morning off goes Mary, she goes to the tomb what does she discover? she discovers that the stone which had been sealed by Roman soldiers by Roman edict had been broken and that the stone had been John just simply says removed and what he may John doesn't give us the details but what Mark and his gospel give us the details is the stone just wasn't rolled back, have you seen the movie Resurrection? I haven't I've seen the clips is it out? it is out what did I say well picky 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 risen I'm pretty sure in the clip that I saw when you see the term it's open and the actual rock in front of it is not rolled back next to it it's actually over there somewhere Anyway, if you see it, have a look for that detail because that's the correct detail. Mark actually says the stone was, the Greek word he uses is like, it was away from the entrance to the tomb. The entrance to the tomb is about this tall. Not this tall, it's not a doorway, it's about half a doorway. A metre, four feet, something like that. You had to stoop down and to go in for all sorts of whatever reasons. But the stone, this huge stone in front of it had been removed, that's what Mary saw. She couldn't figure out why, but her immediate response is to turn and to run to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the author of this gospel, John, and he just slips in, the one that Jesus loved. John is the one who writes that. Nobody else says that John was the favourite of Jesus, but John says it, and they're all dead. What are they going to do about it? And And she goes to them and she says, they, who are they? Well, she doesn't tell us, but just like we use the word they, I reckon she surmised the authorities. The ones who put the Roman seal there, they've broken the seal, they've taken the body. Why? Well, I mean, I'm reading into the text and I'm imagining it. And I think she's assumed certain things. They've taken the body and they're going to do something with it. They're going to dump it in some you know, garbage dump somewhere. They're going to mistreat it. They're going to use it as evidence against the resurrection. Whatever it is, they took it. And I don't know where he is. And that's why I went to the tomb. And she's so passionate about Jesus. Her life has been transformed by him. But she wants the body and she wants to care for it and to finish the burial process and to deal with him in a great deal of honour and respect. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we, she's not by herself, there are other women who are with her. And we don't know where they have put him. Peter and John, being sensible males, Level-headed, rational, think they'll go and look at the evidence. So they get up and they run to the tomb, verse 3. Both of them were running. Now you see again, John, he gives us a detail which is not relevant. But he's elderly, he's filled with the thrill of remembering this experience. He says, as they were running, the other disciple, me, I outran Peter, and I reached the tomb first. What's Peter going to do? He's dead, he can't defend himself. John is telling this story. And John says to us that when he got to the term in verse 5, he bent over, small entrance, and he looked in. Now, John, the apostle, loves words. And he loves using synonymous terms. And in this particular passage, he uses three different Greek words for looked or saw, you may have in your Bible. Here is the first one. In verse 5, he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen that were lying there. He looked. He had a boy's look. He looked in. He didn't look closely. He didn't examine, but he observed. Yep, there's nobody in there. Then Simon Peter, who came running later, and when he got there, he went straight into the tomb. Here is a point worth noting. Here is John, who's a little bit more reserved, a little bit more gentle, a little bit more dignified, a little bit more whatever. Gets to the tomb and, out of respect, stops and looks within. Doesn't dare enter it. Along comes big, blustering Peter. Mind you, he's the one who stumbled and fell, isn't he? Who, you know, denied Jesus. Who has all of that going on for him, maybe. When he gets to the tomb, he does what is often typical for him. He just barges straight in, ducks his head and in he goes. And it says, then Peter came along after him and went straight into the tomb, second time. He saw the strips of linen cloth lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still uh, lying in its place, separate from the linen. second word that John uses is a word that means to look at carefully and to examine. When Peter got inside, he looked and he considered. What did he see? It would appear that what he saw was that the grave clothes were still intact, that they were still wrapped up, just flattened. But they were still in the general shape of a human body. But there was no body in it. And the actual cloth that had been around Jesus's head, or in fact on his face, this napkin, was somehow, well it doesn't say it in the NIV, the cloth had been wrapped around Jesus's head, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen but I think in the ESV it'll say it was folded up that's led to all sorts of interesting conjecture what does it mean it was folded up and who folded it up well Jesus did well why did he fold it up well the most common answer to that is we don't know the most common answer to that is that often when a tradesman did his job or when you had a meal and you left your napkin folded that meant you weren't finished that you were coming back to do something Is that what it meant? Don't know. What it does mean is this that the cloths that were around the body of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was buried and from then until he rose from the dead is not the shroud of Turin. There is no facial impression upon a shroud. There are separate linen bandages still intact and a separate head or face covering separated by distance and where it was. When you read the text of the NIV, it sounds like the linen garments, the wrappings are still there and they've just collapsed. And then the ones around his head here have also collapsed. And they're separated slightly. Because they went and wrapped the Lord Jesus, they would have wrapped him under his arms, up to his chest. So there was a gap from chest to neck. Maybe that's what it means. We don't have all of the precise details. We're just simply told this information. He saw that. He looked at it carefully. Finally, verse 8 the other disciple, John, he'd reached the tomb first. He tells us again. He also went inside. Third word, he saw. He examined very carefully and drew a conclusion. In the conclusion, he goes on to say, he saw and believed. Believed what? Believed the resurrection? In which case, John is telling himself that he was the first to believe the resurrection. Not the first to see Jesus, but the first to believe. Or does it mean he believed Mary Magdalene? And the body's gone. They've taken him. He believed her. It's not fully clear, is it? But particularly the way John uses the word believed in his gospel would tend to go with that first understanding of believed as of someone who is trusting and relying upon the Lord Jesus. Verse 9, he goes on to explain, though he may have seen this evidence, the body's gone, the grave clothes are still there, the stone's rolled away. He saw the evidence and he believed. He still did not, along with Peter, verse 9, he still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He saw it. He believed it. He just didn't understand or know that's what the Old Testament was talking about. Now you have to remember, scripture is used here as Old Testament. And if I ask you the question, what Old Testament verse can you think of that would say that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had to rise from the dead? Can you think of one? Most of us will draw a blank we're in the same category as them. It's, it's not mentioned that often. But when you get into Acts, of course, in Luke 24, you get the Lord Jesus who's on the road to Emmaus on this same day, and he talks to them and he rebukes them for being slow of heart to believe all that the scripture says, that the Christ had to die and he had to rise from the dead. And he opened the scriptures and showed them from the scriptures where it says that he had to rise from the dead. So it's in there. But it is difficult to see. If you read through Acts, you'll get some clues. It's in the Psalms. It's in Isaiah. Maybe the story of Jonah. Some people want to go even to the prophet Hosea. It's there, but it's difficult. These guys, they still did not even yet. And bearing in mind, they'd been following Jesus for three years. And particularly for the last 12 months of those three years, Jesus had said to them pretty point blank and direct, I'm going to Jerusalem, they're going to beat me, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to die and on the third day I'll rise again from the dead. He told them on numerous occasions. Penny hadn't dropped. Well there's something we can learn from that I think. Number one, Peter and John are very different. They have different temperaments and as we follow the Lord Jesus we ought to be aware of that, that not everybody is the same. People think and feel and react and respond differently. And we ought to give each other some latitude on that. Certainly, Peter and John are very different as they come to follow the Lord Jesus. But the second thing which I think is encouraging is they were so... I was going to say, they were so slow to come to a deeper understanding of what it meant. It's better off... My point would be this, that we need to cut ourselves some grace and some understanding that we, like them, likewise, are growing. We don't understand everything. We don't understand everything instantly. We are growing in our understanding and we need to continue to move forward. And even Peter, the guy mentioned here, Simon Peter, he says in his second letter to Peter, chapter 3, the last verse, brothers and sisters, continue to grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to grow, continue to learn. But not just learn head stuff, but grow in the grace of Jesus as well. A couple of implications of the text. And then verse 10, what do they do? Well, the disciples went back to the place that they were staying in. They're not from Jerusalem, but they're staying in Jerusalem. They're they're guests somewhere. They walked back to that house, talking to each other, discussing it on the way. What conclusions did they draw? Mary lets them go. Mary stays at the tomb. So all the evidence is laid out for us in verses 1 to 10. The tomb was empty. Mary saw it. John saw it. Peter saw it. Empty in terms of no body. Not empty in terms of there were the grave clothes there. It's quite strange. If the authorities had taken the body, then why would they take the body out of the the linen thing, uh, strips of cloth, but then wrap it up again? Why would they do that? Doesn't make sense. So they're trying to put all this together. And John tells us he is the one who saw and believed. Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. Not sobbing. You've seen Middle Eastern women. She's wailing. That's that constant bellowing. And as she wept, she did what they did. She bent over likewise and looked inside the tomb. What did she see? Verse 13, 12 tells us, she saw two angels in white. This is the only only time? One of the few times in the Bible where somebody sees an angel and they're not scared stiff. She's not interested in them at all. She's not even distracted by them. She sees two angels. And even the place where they're seating is significant. I think John certainly wants us to pick up on this. She saw them seating on that... um, the stone ledge where the body of Jesus would have been laid and one was sitting at the head where the head was and one was sitting where the feet was. What does that remind you of? Again, you see, you need... I mean, if you are, you've read your Old Testament, you've heard these stories for years. What does that remind you of? What is the one thing in the temple that has like a seat and has an angel here and an angel there and the mercy seat? I think John wants us to pick up on that illusion. I think that's what God is doing by sending these two angels. There's a new mercy seat. In the Old Testament, that was in the covenant behind the curtain, and that's where God met with men. Now it's very clear. That was a picture of this. God now meets with men through the death of Jesus. That's how we come to know God. She's crying, and the angel said to her, woman, which sounds harsh to us, but it, it's not. It's a cultural thing, and... It's nearly impossible to translate in an acceptable way into our language. Anyway, they said, woman, why are you crying? She's not fearful. She's not engaged. She's not connecting with him. Two angels. And she simply says, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. Now, we're not told if she heard something. We're not told if they sort of went like this or pointed, but at that, she turned and she sees Jesus standing there. Only she doesn't realise it's Jesus. He said to her, same question. The angels and Jesus are in turn. Woman, why are you crying? Jesus' second question. Who was it you were looking for? The same question he asked the soldiers in the garden, uh, interestingly. Why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. One preacher, God bless him thought that Mary thought that Jesus uh, was the gardener because when Jesus went out of the tomb, he left the grave clothes there, so he was naked. So he went to the gardener's shed and he pinched the gardener's clothes. So when Mary saw Jesus, she saw the clothes and she thought he's the gardener. Well, that's very creative and probably quite wrong. When Mary saw him, she thought he was the gardener probably because of the time of day who else is working in the garden at that hour of the day except the gardener? We're not told why, we're just simply told she thought he was the gardener. And so she says, sir, if you've carried him away, then can you tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him? She's either one Amazon of a woman or she's simply meaning, you know, I'll arrange for others to come and help me and we'll look after him. The Lord Jesus beautifully then just says one word, her name. In English, it's Mary. Mary. In Aramaic, it's Miriam. And he says it in such a way that she threw her tears or hair in her eye or the sun behind him or whatever it was why she didn't recognise him or maybe even because he's now in a different form. He's the same but he's different. He can walk with two on the Emmaus Road and they didn't know it was him. They didn't recognise him until he broke the bread and they saw those hands. The same but Different. Miriam and the way he said Miriam connected for her there's only one person says her name like that and she completely turned towards him so whether she had sort of half turned to look and was back here or whether whatever now she turns fully and in the process of turning she's moving towards him Uh, John doesn't tell us the other Gospels do. That when she got to him, maybe he was moving towards her as well. When she got to him, she fell at his feet and she grabs him. John certainly tells us that Jesus says, um, don't hold on to me, verse 17. Stop clinging to me. It's not don't touch me. Because he'll have Thomas touch him. He had the other women embrace him and touch him. He invited the disciples to come and touch him. It's not don't touch me. It's that... Hanging on to and not letting go of. Don't do that. And he gives a reason. Interestingly, when, she, uh, when he says Miriam, she says and there are Three levels of teachers in the Jewish culture. So there's a rab, there's a rabbi, and there's a rabboni This is the third level. This is the highest level. This is a term of great affection and terrific respect, teacher, master. And Jesus says to her, stop clinging to me. Why? Well, because he says, I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Why does he say to her, stop clinging? Well, probably. She was so devoted to him, so enraptured by all that he had done for her, she wasn't a prostitute, as common tradition says. What we do know is that she was a woman who was in the deep grasp of Satanism. She had seven demons in her, according to Mark 16 and Luke 8. And that Jesus had cast them out. She was one who was weighing to the extreme, into the dominion of Satan. And Jesus set her free. Greatly forgiven, greatly loved, and therefore greatly loved. Fully devoted. Passionate about him. And he's saying to her, stop clinging on to me. This relationship that we have had is going to change. I am going to be leaving. I am going to be ascending to the Father. Not immediately, 40 days time. We will have other opportunities to have an encounter, to have time together. Could be saying that. He could be saying to her, stop clinging to me because I've got a job for you to do. I want you to go and tell my brothers, the other disciples. Jesus uses the word brothers, family term. He'd previously called them servants. He'd called them friends. Now he's calling them brothers, brothers and sisters. And tell them, give them this message. 40 days from now, I'm going to be ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. Mary, verse 18, is fully obedient. Mary goes to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And John doesn't tell us what Mark tells us. And she tells them, the disciples, that Jesus had said these things to her. Mark tells us that when the women came and said, I've seen the Lord, uh, they didn't believe it. They thought they were telling stories, they were making things up. And it wasn't until Jesus appears again that night. You know, to Peter during the day, to two on the Emmaus Road during the day. And when all of that comes together that night, then the penny begins to drop. And Thomas isn't there. And John goes on to tell us remarkably about Thomas. Unfortunately, we call him doubting Thomas. Questioning Thomas is better. Honest Thomas is a better one. He's a guy basically saying, I want to see, feel, and touch and hear what you've experienced. And Jesus graciously uh, grants that for him. What can we learn from these things? Well, Mary Magdalene is a remarkable lady. She was the first to see Jesus, the risen Jesus. She is the first to hear him, she is the first to touch him, she is the first to be sent by him and she is the first one with a message of good news to be given to the disciples. Putting him back into their culture, that she was a woman that Jesus was doing this with, is absolutely amazing, both of her devotion but also of Jesus' ability to transcend cultural norms and to be willing to say that men and women are equal and that he can work through both of them that nothing hinders them doing his task when he apportions them to be doing it there are lots of other things I guess we could draw from this but I just wanted to uh, bring this down to a reminder of these things and then one statement this happened on the first day of the week which is why the Christian church now worships on Sunday The tomb was empty, except for the grave clothes, as witnessed by these three people. The resurrection was unexpected. Mary didn't expect it. Peter and John and the disciples didn't expect it. They came up with all other sorts of alternatives, explanations. And so would we, probably. And so therefore, the people who have a theory of hallucinations or the story is manufactured just doesn't hold water. All of the evidence is presented for these guys. John sees it and believes. Peter sees it and still figuring it out. Thomas, he needs even more evidence than that again. Each of us are at different points and need different amounts of things for us to come to the same point of understanding. Peter and John certainly had different temperaments and so we ought to be aware of that and cut each other some latitude and accept one another and allow each of us to have our own temperaments to see and feel and think and respond in ways that are real and meaningful for us not to expect all one another to be responding in the same ways certainly like them we all grow in our knowledge and understanding our relationship with Jesus is now like theirs how it changed after the resurrection it's not physical they could see him, feel him, touch him hear his physical voice Jesus says I am ascending to the father to my father and your father to my God and to your God it's now going to be a different relationship it's not physical anymore it's not of this world anymore it's going to be spiritual I'm going to send my spirit and he will indwell you instead of it being external it's now going to be an internal relationship final thing statement I wanted to make was this that Jesus did What he said he would do. He said this is what was going to happen, and he said that he would rise on the third day, and he did. That should both comfort us, and Jesus fulfills his promises that nothing for him is impossible. It should be a comfort. And if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, let it be that. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus, then Jesus will do what he said. Let that be a warning. Because he said that if we don't repent, if we don't believe, if we don't receive him, if we don't exercise faith and trust in him, that as we refuse to accept him, so he will do the same. He will simply say, Have it your way. You don't want to accept me, therefore I won't accept you away from me. He will keep his word. And so, therefore, it's also a warning. Let's accept one another, let's continue to grow. Let's examine the evidence, but most of all, let's know and love the Lord Jesus like Mary. Let's pray. Father, once again on this Sunday night, thank you that Jesus Christ, your son, rose from the dead, appeared to his disciples. Lord, draw near to us. We know that it won't be physical or visible, but we do ask for the blessing spiritually that you would draw very near and realistically to each one of us. Touch us in our heart, in our minds, in our wills and in our emotions. Be real to us and help us, Lord, like Mary, like Peter and John, to love you, to serve you and to be obedient to us, to you. Lord, use us, we pray. To extend your
1: kingdom, to the honour and glory of your name, we ask it. Amen. Amen.